Welcome to the AirCast. My name is Aaron James Nicholas. I had the privilege to teach in the main auditorium at Crossroads Community Church for the last couple of weekends. We've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I was able to lead the study on Solomon's test of time and Solomon's test of relationships, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 4. In the last Yakast episode, I shared the audio from my sermon on Solomon's test of time in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And for this episode, I'm sharing the audio from my sermon on Solomon's test of relationships, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoy. Today, through Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to look at Solomon's test of relationships. And I'm going to warn you, today is going to be one of those days where I jump around the Bible a lot. So read along with me, Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 4. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon, as we saw last week, is always one to give us life's tension. And in this passage, he's no different. He gives us two contrasting examples of relationships. He begins the passage with the relationship of oppression and then contrasts it with the relationship of community. And this is in verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon will restate this contrast of relationships later in the chapter uh, in verses 13 and 16 where he shares this little story. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For that youth went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. This is a pretty classic storyline. I think humans love this kind of a story. The poor child from among the people who rises through wisdom and effort to become the good, kind, and benevolent king. The one who leads with wisdom and discernment. One who is able to understand the struggle of his people. A person of the people, for the people. A king and leader who is in community with others. As opposed to the old foolish king who blatantly rejects advice, bulldozes opposition, which in this case is anyone with wisdom and insight, 
The person who trusts their own arrogance and ego is deceitful, trusts their age, experience, and own vision without heeding the thoughts and words of others. Someone and a leader who is in relationship to other people through oppression. And from this contrast that Solomon gives us in chapter 4, I think we begin to see Solomon's test of relationships. And this is our first point. Relationships can come from oppression or community. This idea of oppression is as old as Cain and Abel. Hopefully you're a little bit familiar with the story of these two brothers. Abel was accepted by God because of the condition of his heart, and his offering was pleasing to the Lord. But Cain, his brother, was rejected by God, and his offering was rejected because of the condition of his heart. So Cain becomes envious of his brother Abel and kills him. He succumbs to the envy that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. And many of us are probably familiar with the fateful response of Cain when God questions him, hey, where's your brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper now? Cold-hearted, without remorse or concern for what he had done, indifferent to his spite, anger, and vengefulness, Cain is a perfect example of an oppressor. Eventually, Cain has a descendant, a man named Lamech, and he becomes a perfect icon for the chilling fate of every oppressor. This is in Genesis chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Adah, Zalah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. For I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 70 times seven. I just can't stand the guy in this passage, his pride, right? Listen to my voice, hear what I have to say. I think he's just a perfect picture of our own self-centeredness and isolation from each other at times. Even the relationship he has with his two wives is a flawless example of the brokenness that enters into a marriage relationship after the fall, burdened by selfishness, excess, dissatisfaction, and objectification. Some scholars will actually call this passage of scripture Lamech's sword song. And they suggest that Lamech was actually celebrating in this passage the invention of the sword by his son, Tubalcain, who we're told was a master of fashioning instruments of bronze and iron, edged instruments especially. Lamech in this passage is clearly celebrating his own strength and his own vengefulness. And I think it mirrors our own willingness to unduly punish the most minor of offenses that people make against us. To use our weapons, ferocity, and power to protect ourselves from one another. And to overcome anybody who opposes us. I think Lamech is really speaking our language, verbalizing the way that we think and feel, verbalizing the condition of our own heart. I have my own strength and my own power, right? Like, I don't need help in my toil or in my life. I don't need anybody else to lift me up or to keep me warm because I don't fail. I will never fall, and I will overpower others if that's what it takes to keep myself warm. I think Lamech verbalizes what it looks like in the heart of a true oppressor. In our country today, I only have to list three cities to show the result of relationships founded on oppression. Falcon Heights, Minnesota, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 
in Dallas, Texas. And that's without even mentioning the horrible tragedies that have, had, that have had resulted from a world that is at war with terror. We are all so tragically afraid of each other sometimes. Which brings us to our second point. Relationships of oppression are formed with fear. Relationships of oppression always end in fear. They always produce and cultivate fear inside of us, a fear of each other. And I think I can show you why. Before Cain kills his brother Abel, God challenges him with this verse in Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I think this passage reveals to us why Cain kills his brother Abel, why Cain chooses oppression over community, why he fails Solomon's test of relationships. It's easier to rule over somebody else than it is to rule over ourselves. After the fall, human relationships are completely shattered. Where there once was unity, now there is discord. Where there once was cooperation, now there is competition. Evil has entered the world. And that evil reaches a pinnacle in Genesis chapter 6. And we have this in verse 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Before God floods the earth, he surveys the world and sees that every intention and thought of the human heart was only evil. I think Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4 helps our finite human understanding picture just a little bit of what God might have seen in that moment. All the oppressions, the tears, of the oppressed, a world where the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, a world where it is better to not have been than to have to see the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I mean, how can we not be afraid of each other in a world where it's better to have never been born? Right? How can we not be afraid of each other when we're constantly slandering, hurting, and deceiving, and murdering each other? When we're constantly oppressing one another? I think we're trying to overcome our fear by finding a way to get control of others in order to protect ourselves from them sometimes. I think we try and convince ourselves that through oppression, we can control relationships that we have with each other. That through oppression, we can control the chaotic world we find ourselves in. I think for some of us, we think in our head that maybe we'll feel a little less afraid if we are the thing that everybody else is afraid of. So we put ourselves above others sometimes. We claw our way to the top. We gain favor by force. We isolate ourselves from one another while we continue to subject the people around us to our own wants, desires, and needs in order to protect and preserve what is ours, in order to protect and preserve ourselves. 
We think we can get control of the chaos through this kind of oppression. We think we can defeat fear with more fear. We think it's easier to rule over somebody else than it is to rule over ourselves sometimes. The oppression of humanity was so evil that we're told it grieved the heart of God. The word grieved here reminded me of this passage in the New Testament that Paul uses in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He uses almost the exact same language. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, all of those words are just perfectly fitting descriptions for Cain and the people that follow after him. But notice what Paul contrasts that with in this verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The Spirit of God is not a spirit of oppression, but one of kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And I think Paul is very, very particular in this passage when he grabs for the forgiveness of God. And this is our third point. Relationships of community are formed with forgiveness. There's a fascinating parallel here between Solomon's description of community and a description of community that Jesus gives in Matthew 18. Solomon says this, and I'm going to paraphrase it because we've already read this passage. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. If two lie together, they keep warm. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jesus describes community this way in Matthew 18. This is verses 15 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Solomon and Jesus both describing people in community, lifting one another up, binding and loosening the burdens we have against each other, a threefold cord, God and one another. Love that picture. There's a really powerful parable that follows this description of community. Jesus tells a story of a king who forgives the insurmountable debt of a servant that he has, who owes him a lot of money. But then after he's forgiven, that same servant goes out and refuses to forgive the smaller debt of one of his buddies. So all of the other servants get together and they go back to the king and they tell him about the injustice. And the king has that first servant thrown into debtor's prison. So unfortunate for the guy. Feel bad for him. And it's pretty clear that Jesus is trying to get his listeners to understand that God has forgiven them their sins against him. So they should forgive the sins of their brothers and sisters against them as well. 
And I can't help but compare this parable of Solomon's story, this parable to Solomon's story of the poor youth who becomes the wise king, right? Because this king's act of forgiveness shows his ability to empathize with the struggle and debt of his servant. It shows that this king is able to understand the plight of his people. But the question that actually prompts Jesus to tell this parable comes from Peter. Peter says this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And here it comes. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. The same exaggerated number that Lamech uses to measure his vengefulness against humanity and against his enemy is the same number that Jesus reaches for when he tries to measure the forgiveness of God. Wow. Jesus was a smart guy. He knew what he was talking about. He knew his scripture. Lamech's sword song is countered by Jesus later in a command to Peter when in the face of his own oppressors in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus connects the oppression of a fallen world full of broken relationships, a world where the oppressed have no one to comfort them, where their oppressors have all the power, where people sing the song of the sword and the sons of Cain reign with what he was about to do on the cross. Jesus understood Solomon's test of relationships well. Jesus understood that true community can never be formed in fear. That oppression cannot be overcome with revolt because that only gives birth to a new kind of oppression. That oppression can only be overcome with forgiveness. But Jesus also understood that forgiving will always cost us, especially when we're trying to overcome oppression and fear for the sake of each other. And this is our fourth point. Forgiveness costs. To overcome sin and do well, Cain would have had to have let go of his grudge against his brother Abel. He would have had to have acknowledged his own fault. He would have had to have sought forgiveness from not only God, but from Abel as well for his mistake. Cain would have had to have submitted himself in his desire to rule over his brother. But the brokenness in Cain, the fractured spirit inside of him, found it easier to simply get rid of Cain, or get rid of Abel, his brother. You can almost think like Cain in this moment. God can't favor my enemy if my enemies are all dead, right? Tragic. So often we think it's easier to rule over somebody else than to rule over ourselves. But there's a problem with this kind of thinking. Cain and his descendant Lamech prove that vengeance only ever begets more vengeance because oppression is always about maintaining the illusion of power and control. Oppressors, so when that illusion is lost, when that illusion is lifted, oppressors have to exact more oppression and more fear in order to maintain that illusion. 
But community can't be controlled because it requires us to place ourselves below each other, to accept our own flaws and our own brokenness, to recognize our own need for forgiveness and our need for each other. Community exposes us to people, forces us to recognize that nothing is truly in our control and that nothing truly belongs to us. That everything is God's. That it all belongs to him and is in his control. Jesus knew full well what he was doing when he told Peter to put his sword away. Jesus understood that to overcome oppression and fear, in order to overcome brokenness in our relationships, in order to overcome the sin that is crouching at the door of every human heart, he was going to have to let himself be killed by his oppressor so that he could forgive him. To show the world that retaliation and rebellion against each other find their root in vengeance, and that will only ever lead to more vengeance but that when we seek forgiveness and forgive each other, we take the power from oppression. Because you cannot oppress those who willingly take your oppression and then forgive you for it. Because when you do that, you show the oppressors for who they truly are. And they can't help but see it for themselves. But there's a problem When oppressors lose the illusion of control, they have to exact more oppression and fear in order to maintain the illusion. Jesus puts it this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. John 15. Jesus was not of this world because he refused to be subject to the world's oppressions. He came. God came as one of the oppressed to bring relief to the tears of the oppressed. He became the poor youth to become our truest and greatest and grandest king. He came to show that we are not called to rule over somebody else, but that we are called to rule over ourselves for the sake of one another. He came to show us that true power comes through submission because when we submit ourselves to others, they can't control us anymore. There was a Roman soldier who watched the death of Jesus. And when he saw it happen, he says this, he exclaims this, and I just... I can never get over this passage. Mark 15, 39. Truly, this man was the son of God. A Roman soldier, a Roman executioner, no less, right? He's at the cross. The picturesque oppressor. I mean, if anybody's ever been an oppressor, this is the guy, right? With the hat and the helmet, with the hair thing. Seeing the power that the forgiveness of Jesus unleashed on the world can't help but exclaim, this man was the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus calls all of us to this kind of self-sacrificial, costly forgiveness for the sake of overcoming oppression with community. The Apostle Paul writes this, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but never destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Amen. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Love that passage, 2 Corinthians 4. But this forgiveness cannot come from ourselves or our own effort. And this is our fifth point. The kind of forgiveness that overcomes oppression for the sake of community must come from the love of God in us. Ecclesiastes 4.16, Solomon writes this, There was no end of all the people, all of whom that poor youth who became king led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. This closing verse is a subtle reminder that even Solomon's poor youth who became the good, kind, and benevolent king of the people was forgotten. All of his effort, all of his wisdom and understanding didn't outlast the fading memory of his people. Solomon also writes this in verse 6, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Through Solomon's test of relationships, we need something more than ourselves, more than just our own effort, our own work, and our own forgiveness, more than just two handfuls of our own toil if our community will overcome oppression and outlive us. We need the love of God, a love that has been poured out on his world generation after generation after generation. Psalm 78 paints a vivid picture of God's faithfulness in this way. God commanded our fathers to teach their children, and the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Psalm 78 actually chronicles the story of the people of Israel and how God continues to forgive and love his people even after their repeated failure and faithlessness. That even though their work was insufficient, the work of God lasts we can trust it. And when we read this passage in light of the gospel, I can't help but be overwhelmed by the hope we have in Jesus because of the work that Jesus has done. Because the work of Jesus challenges us to place ourselves below others, to accept our own brokenness, our own need for forgiveness, and our own need for one another. And I think in this passage, we also find our responsibility to teach future generations about that love and forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. But not just with our words, but with our actions and lives as well. Because Solomon, with his obsession for tension, writes this in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. 
we must set an example of the work of Jesus and what it's gonna look like in our world today for the next generation. Church, are we going to teach the next generation to be oppressors? Are we gonna sing our children the sword song of Lamech? Are we gonna raise them up in the vengeance of Cain? Or are we gonna tell them the story of Jesus? The one who became oppressed to forgive his oppressor. Jesus, who showed his oppressor what true power and what true control looked like. Jesus, who overcame fear with forgiveness. Jesus, who has come to conquer our broken relationships with reconciliation. Jesus, who has given us victory over sin, crouching at the door of our heart. Will we be a people that live like two people are better than one? Will we lift one another up? Will we keep each other warm? And will we stand together in the face of oppression and fear and not be overcome through the power of Jesus? Amen. Amen. Will we teach our children how to be a community? The Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. And again in verse 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God is not a God of oppression. God is a God of love. So if we want to know God, we must overcome, be overcome with the love of God, forgiving one another as we have been forgiven in order to form relationships of community with one another. Because, and this is our last point, through love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, our community becomes the body of Jesus. Solomon showed us the kind of life that relationships of oppression will lead to. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 8. I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. If we live lives of oppression, we eventually become so consumed with protecting and providing for our own needs that we fail to ask ourselves what we're protecting and providing them for. Right? We come to the end of our life and look around us to find ourselves alone, surrounded in nothing but our own vanity. It's a great word. But the Apostle Paul shows us what true community looks like, formed with forgiveness that comes from the love of Jesus in us. In Romans 8, he says this, We are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons 
of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we, church, are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You've been listening to a down-tempo devotional from the Yakast, a young adult ministry of Crossroads Community Church. Crossroads meets at 1188 Park Avenue West in Mansfield, Ohio. For service times and info on the church, go to crossroadswired.com. You've been listening to The Test of Relationships, a study of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 using the English Standard Version. It's one part of a multi-part series that Crossroads has been doing through the book of Ecclesiastes. So to listen to the rest of the series led by Pastor Dave Vance, you should go to that website again, crossroadswired.com, and give the rest of the series a listen. Young Adult Ministry has a new website, yacrossroads.com. So if you're interested in Crossroads Community Church and their Young Adult Ministry, go ahead and visit that site and check it out. There's a calendar, a contact form, and some more info there. I've also started to post manuscripts of all of the Yakasts, as well as some additional blogs from sermons, etc. at my website, aaronjamesnicholas.com. So go ahead and check that out as well. Thank you so much for listening to another Down Tempo devotional from the Yakast. Yeah